Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Thank you, Chase. Uh, and you know, it's really great to actually have really good production help while I'm uh, signing up to try and figure all of this out my own. Um, you know, it was just a couple of months ago that we did the one-year anniversary episode of the show, and it marked a shift in what the show represents. That line is part of the intro. We're here to do everything on Linux they said couldn't be done. That's not, it's not just a catchy line. It's not just a brochure filler. It's fundamentally who we are as a show and what this network stands for. And I'm, I'm proud of the commitment that everybody here has made and continues to make, and I, I hope that the Ask Noah Show will be at the center of that Linux ecosystem for years to come, specifically FreeBSD on the desktop. I don't know who wrote that. Somebody wrote that into my show notes, FreeBSD on the desktop. Where's Alan Jude? Pretty cool. They've got an announcement. It's pretty standard to run a custom application or a custom appliance on Linux. And if you want bulletproof stability and security, it's, it becomes a no-brainer on the server. But running a full-scale production on Linux, specifically audio-video production, on the desktop, well, today, to a certain degree, that has actually become pretty standard. There are a lot of broadcasters that are doing that. But three years ago, with a home-built PC from Fry's with 12 hours before the fest, with some second-hand USB capture cards and some C920s, we made that work. And that was unheard of, and it was crazy, and we did it. And we were the first to do it. Jupiter Broadcasting was the first entity that I'm aware of that was able to do a full-scale production under Linux. And I hope that we can continue to be the network that does it first on Linux, that pushes the envelope of Linux, not just on the server, but on the desktop. And this week has been full of stuff that would have been really easy to do on macOS or Windows. Easier, really, in a lot of ways. And Chris and I could have looked around and said, look at how many of these computers in this fest. Look at how many people that are bringing laptops and they're running Windows or Mac OS on it. Everybody else is doing it. Let's just do that. We could have loaded a few machines with Windows 10. We could have installed the drivers, rebooted, and uninstalled those drivers and installed the new ones to replace them with and then reboot, and then turn off automatic updates and reboot again. And we could disable a Cortana and then reboot again and probably reboot a third time because just because. And then uh, reinstall the operating system from scratch when we hit a brick wall and then reboot a few more times. And we have a mostly functional system, I think. But we didn't do that. And, uh, and it's, it was through that commitment to Linux that we have gotten here today, which for the most part, so, barring a, a couple of audio issues, it's been a pretty solid system, yeah? Uh, it, you know what? I, I was making the example earlier. You know, we've been doing this here for five years now. And every year, it's become more and more solid, more and yeah. more dependable. 
and this is the first year that I remember that things have been really solid. And the USB audio thing, that can happen on any platform. That's sure. just a technical limitation. But this is dependable. This is the way it should be and something that we can encourage people to do. Chase, our technical director, the guy who's running the board today, helping us out, making the production possible, doing all of the video switching. I do want to ask, you know, we even have the hardware to fix that particular audio issue. We do. Yeah? Yes, we do. Yeah. And it just it wouldn't be a function of taking the broadcast machine offline for 20 minutes, and it's like, you know, we've got it working well enough that we didn't even we decided not to fix that particular issue. Right, and, and that's something that anybody on any platform would honestly run into. This is not that's not a Linux issue or right. anything like that. It's uh, a limitation of the hardware. Really. It's, a, it's a hardware limitation. It's a it's it's something that's been there for what, 20 years or how long USB is. Sure. So, yeah, no, we're fine. It's been great. This is something I want to I, I want to I, I want to be a theme of this particular episode of the show. I want to talk about real nerds, and I've got I'm surrounded by real nerds, people who care about technology, people who care about building the next generation of cool things. And uh, I went back. I, I, I had a discussion with the gentleman we're going to have on the show here in just a couple of moments, and I had I had the uh, the, the good fortune of having dinner with this guy, and and our conversation last night reminded me of a blog post I wrote back in middle school, high school maybe. I mean, a long, long time ago. And I went and dug it up. What the, modern learn, what the modern nerd lacks is the ability to create. When I was in middle school, I would sit in my room and take wires, batteries, capacitors, resistors, and a 555 timer, which is an IC, which is a blast for anyone who hasn't played with one, and I would put electronics together. To me, a nerd is anyone who looks at a problem and thinks, what do manufacturers make that I could use in, and then insert your project here? Today's nerd looks for what manufacturers can make for me and what I can play with. It seems that no longer is there an interest in building or creating, but rather reading an owner's manual and quote-unquote discovering features that engineers have put into the products that I buy. I once told a guy that was complaining his computer speakers didn't have a second input that he could build a small box that fed the speaker two inputs and a mute switch for each. Please realize that when I say this, I'm not talking about some cardboard cutout with electrical wires taped together, although I'd be dishonest if I didn't acknowledge that much has been learned from just those kinds of haphazardly constructed devices. In a pinch, I'll take duct tape, electrical tape, and some tinfoil, and you'd be surprised what can be accomplished. But you can buy project boxes from Radio Shack. You can order custom ones online. It would be a fraction of what those audio breakout boxes sell for at Office Max or Best Buy, but the modern-day nerd wasn't interested. He looked at me like I was batting up crazy for suggesting such a thing. Now, the best thing about Linux Fest, in fact, the best thing about any Linux Fest, is that there are a group of people that gather for the collective ability to hang out and get to know one another. And I, I opened the show with this last year, the first episode that we did from Linux Fest Northwest on the Ask Noah Show, and I said that the, I felt that it was the human connection that sets Linux Fest apart from the Microsofts or Apple Fests. Apple users tend to obsess over the hardware. They focus on what the hardware can do and what the, the value that the hardware brings. In Microsoft, people tend to focus on the software and what innovations the software can bring. But Linux users, well, we like hardware. We definitely like software. But we light up when we see other Linux users. And I guess, there, if I, I guess if I think about it, there is a small part of me that believes that a small function of that is finding another Linux user on the same planet. It's sort of like finding a unicorn swimming in the middle of the ocean. But this year, and I've seen this over and over again, not only at this fest, but other fests, there is one thing that separates us from the Linux community. And that is that the uh, the, the thing that separates the Linux community from the rotten half-eaten apples and micro-can't-write softwares of the world is that we value the community. 
and we sit around at dinner, we talk about Linux, but we also talk about, we talk about human connections, and we talk about geeks and nerds, and we form this bond that is, it's a fraternity that is blind to race, sex, religion, skin color. The only requirement to be a part of that fraternity, the only requirement to be a part of that group is you have to love technology. And I met a guy, his name is Jeff, and he reminded me of that blog post that I wrote so many years ago, and you're a true nerd, you're a true geek, you're a guy that gets it. And I spent hours talking to you at the dinner table last night. I'm happy to welcome you into the Ask Noah Show. Welcome, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. It's a real honor to be here. So tell me, talk to me about what it was like getting started as, as a geek, as a nerd. When you were a kid, you were playing with wires. You weren't going to Best Buy and buying you know, the, uh, the Xbox and, and looking to see what features it could do, what cloud things it could control. You wanted to turn a light on or off. You were, you were doing that yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, any any way I could solve a problem, I would try to do myself. Um, any toy I had that had something in it, any motor, any kind of controller, something like that, it got torn apart. Nothing lasted in my house. So you wanted to learn what was inside of the electronics? Yeah, I wanted to know how it worked. I wanted to use it to make other things work the way I wanted them to, to work. <laughs> so you see this like a, a remote control car. And uh, it has a and it has a it has a remote with it, and you push the remote forward, and you notice the motor spins one way. Push the remote back, the the motor spins the other way. Then you start thinking, man, I could. What if I attach that to a fan blade, and I could blow air one way, or I could suck air the other way, and you start, you start learning technology, or visualizing technology, or understanding technology at, at this component basic building block level, almost Minecraft like way of approaching it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, any time you can get your hands on something and play with anything, even, even, even you know, operating systems with Linux, you get your hands on it, start playing with it, you're going to learn it. It doesn't matter what it is. And for me, as a kid, it was electronics. It was my, my essentially my toys, um, you know, from Kinects to Legos. Those are those are the biggest things in my house. That's what I had most of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like I said, if I had an RC car that broke or even if it didn't break, I just ended up taking it apart and I'd throw the motor onto a Kinects car or something else I'd make or... You know, make it do something that obviously it wasn't supposed to do, and that, that was always my what I had the most fun doing is making something do what it's not supposed to do. So these days, how do you think that understanding and that deep dive of technology has led to what you're doing today? Well, it, it, can, it helps you solve problems. It, you can go up to an issue and, and see a problem, and as long as you can understand that problem, then you can understand there are many, many ways to solve it. And like you said, you don't have to go buy an appliance to solve this problem. You can build a solution. And when you take that built solution, then now you've gotten to a point where your day job requires you not only to solve problems, but to, how do I put this gently, but understand bare wire. Like, you're yeah. not afraid of bare copper. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, you know, I deal with high-voltage stuff, DC and AC, and um, you need to understand how that works and when it's on or off. I mean, that's the most important part. But uh, to some aspect, you need to understand a little bit of what's going on in electronics as well. And uh, the biggest part is, is problem solving, and I, I can't push that enough. My growing up, building things, learning how to take things apart and rebuild them into other things helped me learn how to problem solve. So when I have an issue as a technician, I need to fix that problem. And just years and years and years of fixing problems that didn't really exist helped me fix real problems today. And the ability to, like, so going back to the bare wire stuff, if you have if you have a configuration or a layout or a system that was not designed to do something, if you have the ability to take that thing completely apart and add parts in or take parts out or connect things that weren't designed to be connected together, you know, that opens you up to a whole different range of, of, of 
that, that a whole range of flexibility that just simply didn't exist. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you can do whatever you want. I mean, that that's 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 what's great about it. And the best thing is you own it. You own what you're doing. You're not buying something and and stuck at the limitation of whatever that something is. You you now have built something that you completely own. You completely control, and you can you can use and, and you can use for as long as you want. Because if it breaks, you can fix it. Absolutely. That's great. You said that you had uh, you had experimented with Linux from a young age. Tell me the story. How did you get started with Linux? What drew you to it? What did you do with it? Um, I wasn't super young. I was probably high school. A buddy of mine uh, showed me Linux. It was actually Fedora, like, 7. Okay. <laughs> and uh, a buddy of his showed him that, so it just kind of went down. And eventually, um, after high school, installed, was it Mandriva, 2007 or 2008, I believe. Okay. And uh, that was just, it was fascinating to see something that I actually have control over. Right. And that that was the key. I mean, of course, I ran Windows for years, uh, a lot of gaming and stuff like that. But being able to install my own operating system, I remember, I remember being out of college with my netbook in my hand, installing an operating system. People were giving me these weird eyes. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, going back to that, again, bringing a full circle back to that component level discussion, When the, one of the things that I've always appreciated about Linux is if you can get your workflow to work in Linux, if you can get comfortable on a Linux workflow, it means that you can then take that operating system and put it on anything. And so I have gone everywhere from netbooks to <clears throat> that little, uh, I forget the, the, I can't remember, uh, Sony made the little uh, Sony Vio that fit in your pocket. It was like a little seven inch laptop thing. Yeah. And I've gone, I've gone from those things all, and scaled all the way up to a $10,000 15 inch Dell that we have that has four, uh, you know, MVNE drives and, and, and like the thing is crazy. And Linux scales that way and the workflow I, is identical because I can use the same desktop environment on both of those machines. I can install the same software on both of those machines. I'm not beholden to, well, uh, one of the issues we were dealing with is um, we had, a, we had a, a, a friend that had a, a MacBook, and, uh, and he was trying to connect with VPN, and his current VPN, Mac had, had basically removed the VPN functionality from the latest version of Mac OS to connect with that particular VPN, so he couldn't do it. So he was trying to find third-party software, and that wasn't working, and I'm like, you know, and there were some, there were some security issues with that particular kind of VPN. Um, but the reality is just taking the option away completely meant that he was fundamentally unable to use that computer to do his work. And it, and it leads me to ask the question, why do we take those options away from users? Why do we remove those component level things? Why not leave them there, leave the building blocks alone and let the user decide, let the rational self-thinking human decide if they want to put those blocks back in or put the, take those blocks back out. And I think part of your appreciation for that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is because you've grown up at a time and you have approached technology in a way that that focuses on those building blocks and the value of being able to put components in and take components out and add a nine volt battery when you want a more voltage and, and gang up you know a couple of double A's when you want a longer duration and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it definitely ties in um, and, and, and with the operating system factor, I can do whatever I want. I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I'm running, even. It doesn't matter what distribution I'm running. Uh, yeah. You know, the, all the packages are there. If not, I can compile it, and I can make it do what I want it to do. And I don't have those limitations that that you know, the manufacturer or developer can say, hey, you know, I'm going to disable this, or turn off that, or like you said, get rid of a VPN. That's that's crazy. You know, why would they take away what we're using? Why would they take away the tools we need? Right. And that is gone with Linux. It doesn't exist. You don't have those problems. So using it 
I use it every day. I use it for everything. It's it's if it's uh, if it's a computer, it's where I'm linked. So you've even you've even managed to get Linux working on your Microsoft Surface. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not perfect. It's a Surface Pro Four. Wow. Yeah. Un unfortunately, I was uh, I wanted the I wanted the hardware. I mean. It's it's an amazing piece of hardware, and right. I did the research and seen that the Surface Pro 3 had all of the had a bunch of good Linux support. So I was like, yeah, cool. Well, you know, if I have to wait a little bit, no problem. And it does sure. run Linux. Um, there's there are some issues, but it does run Linux. Yeah. How hard was that to actually get it installed? Because I understand there's a 32-bit uh, bootloader that you have to basically slipstream the boot in order to get that the the operating system to install is that right is that do I have that somewhat correct I don't recall the surface pro 4 having a 32-bit uh, bootloader I did run into that issue on another tablet I recently installed Linux on oh you did yeah and there's a great tool made um, ISO spin I believe is what it's called and it'll it'll let you take an Ubuntu image spin it out and replace the 64-bit bootloader with 32-bit bootloader even with a 64-bit um, operating system. So okay. that's been that's been great on on that separate tablet. For the Surface Pro, there was a pre-made ISO actually I downloaded with Linux Mint, and um, I'm not a huge fan of the the uh, distro, but you know sure. it works. It's Linux, and yep. and I'm happy with it. So yeah, I don't I, uh, any distro is better than no distro. So yeah, I don't exactly. I don't I don't have distro hate here, especially on this show. But what were some of the challenges that you ran into? With, uh, with with the Surface? with the Surface Pro, how, getting Linux installed, how you know where 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 were the pain points? If somebody you're speaking to somebody else that's going to be doing this, you know what are you telling them to look out for? Yeah, so um, I still don't have touchscreen support, which isn't that big of a deal. I have the little uh, laptop uh, keyboard and mouse thing, so the touchscreen support is not a huge deal. Mm -hmm. um, DPI is obviously something you need to look out for because it's 12 inch screen and it's. Uh, it's, it's two, over 1080p. I think. Is it 2K? I think? I think it's 2K. Yeah, yeah it's really, really high. And um, there's no sleep. So that's the biggest problem I have is, is I'd like to just put everything to sleep yeah. and let it be. So you're going to have to shut down. You try to sleep, you can't turn it back on. Um, some of these issues have been solved. I've tried to solve them. I'm just not, uh, I don't know, I can't figure it out myself. But the touchscreen, I guess, has been solved. And I, from what I've seen, even the sleep issue has been solved. I just haven't figured it out yet. So I, it's interesting that you say that because I have a first-generation Surface and I have the same issues. I, well, I don't have all the same issues. My touchscreen works, but the I have a problem with the suspend. Mm. Um, I have circumvented that problem. Primarily, if it was my main machine, it would be completely unacceptable because I just... When I buy a computer, I need all of the functionality and features of the computer to work. So if it was my only machine, I, it would be a deal stopper. But the Surface is kind of the computer that sits inside of my bag, kind of the spare machine. If we're out, uh, if we're out doing something, it's like the oh, I'm gonna, I need a, to run a task for a little bit. I'll, I'll throw it up on the Surface and let it run that way, um, or my bedside computer, that kind of a thing. So for those things, I don't really mind about the sleep. I just shut the thing down. But it'd be interesting if you know, I'll, I'll sync up with you later. And if there is a way to get that to work, I'd be interested to to hear how that is. Um, chat room is giving me a hard time. They're saying I installed Windows on my Surface. I did not. Uh, what advice do you have uh, for, let's say, I'm going to reset for a second. You're talking to the 12-year-old you. And knowing what you know now about technology and the direction of where technology is going, what advice would you give him about playing with electronics and technology? Um, I would tell him to focus more on what he, you're doing. Uh, definitely focus more on what you're doing and... Uh, dive a bit deeper. I, I was a bit scatterbrained. You know, I would work on little things here, throw it aside, work on little things there, throw it sure. aside. So, so focus is the biggest thing, I think. And um, 
you know, that, that's that's the, that's the key. You want to do something, you got to focus on it, and you got to get really, really good at it. So I get kind of good at a lot of things, <laughs> jack of all trades, I guess, but I'm the master of none. So yeah, well, I don't know about that. I, I would say you're. When it comes to, I, I would say, is it a fair assumption to say that you are a master at uh, at wiring, you know, and and understanding. Um, Electricity and electronics? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not so much uh, the small electronic stuff, but, you know, typical AC line, stuff like that, I'm, I'm definitely getting there. Um, mm -hmm. There's always more to learn. Always more to learn. Yeah. So, so you know, yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> and having an open mind really plays into that. Yeah, definitely. So are you still on Linux Mint these days? Oh, no. I, I mean, I run Arch on my main system. Um, oh, you do? Yeah. Linux Mint's just on the, the surface. But, I mean, I run, I run pretty much everything. I even have OpenSUSE on my, uh, on my media center. So okay. whatever whatever serves its purpose, I just like to, like to hop around a little bit. But I've been running Arch on my uh, 2013 Bonobo <laughs> since then, since I got it. Reinstalled, awesome. uh, reinstalled Arch on there, and the same install is still running. Awesome. So do you have a site that, or a, a Twitter or anything that you want to plug uh, where people can follow if you want, they want to find out more information? Nope. Um, no, just Telegram, I guess, uh, ESC476 on Telegram. Okay. So, yeah, I don't do any social media. Yeah, and you're, you're in the Ask Noah group, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so definitely. they can connect with you that way. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate having you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. Again, phone lines 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Let's go to the phones. Eugene is calling from Russia. Hey, Eugene, welcome to the Ask Noah show hey thanks for taking my call yes sir thanks for calling in all the way from russia how can we help <laughs> and well first of all i would like to thank you and all the jb crew for the show i'm a huge uh, jb fan listener for five years now starting from ubuntu 1304 review huge wow. fan and advocate of the network thank you so much <laughs> you're most welcome it's my pleasure Okay, so uh, turning to the question, uh, I have a question about my smartphone. I have this three-years-old phone, uh, here is the link in uh, the IRC, uh, which may sound old, but at the same time, it has four gigs of RAM, Intel x86 processor inside, and since I don't play games or something like this, uh, wow. these specs are enough for me, so... Uh, well, in addition, I've been a happy Lineage OS user since Cyanogen mod uh, mm -hmm. before the fork. But, uh, well, I choose Lineage OS because I, I've chosen Lineage OS because I didn't expect the vendor uh, supporting the device for a long time. Right. And I've expected uh, this from Lineage community, but unfortunately, since February this year, Lineage OS has uh, dropped support for the phone. And now oh, I have no. a pretty powerful device uh, receiving no updates. And keep it in mind, I have some banking apps, lots of personal stuff on the device. I consider sure. OS updates to be crucial thing. So uh, could you recommend the replacement for Lineage OS with GF support? Or <laughs> following the discussion, the previous discussion with the guest, I should turn to the recommendation from Lineage OS site and try building the solution myself. Yeah, I mean that would be I mean that would be great because you'd help the next generation of people that are interested. Um, but I, I guess my recommendation, and I'd have to have your exact model phone to, to be able to tell you if this would work directly. There's a there's an alternative Android ROM called Elo E E L O. I'll have a link for you in the show notes, 
And uh, what it is is an upcoming Android uh -huh. distribution uh, that's based on Lineage OS. And it's being created by one of the developers of Mandrake Linux. So the idea is that you have an open source mobile operating system that is completely free from Google. And uh, Elo promises to have its own cloud and email services to give you an Android free experience. And uh, the only downside to Elo is it's in the very, very, very uh, infant stages of development because it, uh, you know, they're just starting up. But, and, and I would have, again, if you, uh -huh. um, if you're on Telegram or if you send an email into, um, Live at AskNoahShow.com. I will, uh, with the exact model number for you, I can get some more detailed answers. We have some problems with Telegram here in Russia, you know? Oh, right. That was a dumb thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, email. You, said you, have, you have email. I'm the sorry, funny, my friend. The funny thing is, I'm still on Telegram because <laughs> our government is not successful in blocking it. <laughs> you know, we talked about that on the Ask Noah show. I feel like an idiot. I'm so sorry. Uh, but yeah, Eugene, I, I'll have a link for you in the show notes. If you head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com slash 62, I'll have that, uh, I'll have that information uh, available for you in the show notes. And if you uh, send me an email live at asknoahshow.com, then I'll, if you send me with your uh, exact model number, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send that information to you directly. Matthew is calling from California. Hey, Matthew, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how are you doing today? It's good to talk to you again. Excellent, sir. Same to you. How can we help? Well, uh, to set the stage, I had uh, pinged you on Telegram last week uh, about an idea I had to help sort of kickstart my consulting business. And um, I remembered you telling the story about how when you were first starting out with AltSpeed, that you would basically just go into hotels and say, hey, maybe I can do this one thing for you and see how you like it, and then we'll go from there, sort of that that sort of um, method for getting your foot in the door. Do I, re do I remember that correctly? Yes, you sure do. Yeah. So uh, as, as I had said, I, uh, I have this coffee shop near me that I love, and their Wi-Fi is horrible. And um, so the thought process that I was going through was um, offering perhaps to uh, do a temporary install of some Ubiquiti equipment, access points, and, uh, and uh, controller and, um, and see if we couldn't improve the experience um, as a way of maybe getting my foot in the door to getting them as a client. Absolutely. Um, but I've never really used um, any of that um, hardware before. I've only heard you, you talk about it. Um, and so I didn't know how easy it would be um, to get something like that up and running. I didn't know how many access points per square foot kind of thing. Um, that you usually do when you're doing a, an installation. Um, sure. So I, those, those are sort of where my questions are. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I also have some. I also have some questions about best practices with businesses with running a business in terms of like business licenses and bonding insurance and and um, you know those kinds of things too. But sure. I don't. That may be for another phone call. Yeah, maybe we got some time yet. Oh, let's dig into this as, as best we can. Okay. So let's start from the beginning. So first, actually setting up Unify access points is one of the most brain-dead simple things easy to do. Basically, they have a PPA, and you add the PPA into an Ubuntu box, and then you install the Unify software. Okay. Now, the Unify software runs And that doesn't as... need to be at... Sorry, Sorry that doesn't need to be at the location. That can be in the cloud or on DigitalOcean or back at my shop or whatever, right? Uh, let me get to that. So uh, we, you install the software okay. as a service... 
and uh, basically browse to the IP address of the server that you've installed it on, and you'll be greeted with a web uh, control panel, which will allow you to do everything in a very mm -hmm. simple GUI uh, fashion. Now, can you host it on a cloud mm -hmm. or you can host it locally? The answer to that question is both. It's how you set up the okay. access points to be discovered is what determines that. So, for example, if you install it on a server and plug it into the exact same network, when the access point boots up, it automatically will discover that server, and you'll just see your access point pop in and say, would you like to adopt this access point into a, uh, into a, in, into that particular environment? Um, it, mm -hmm. Now, if you want to go multiple environments, like let's say you have five coffee shops, you want them each to have their own SSID, you want them each to have their own separate password, you want them each to have their own separate user controls. Um, the way to do that is you'd have to store the server or run the server on like DigitalOcean or Amazon or something like that. Now the problem with mm -hmm. that is you no longer have that option of local network discovery. And so the way we fix that, or at least the way we do it at AltaSpeed, is there's a couple different ways to do it. You can do it with a DHCP option. The way we do it is with the DNS entry. So in the router, we tell okay. the DHCP server that the first DNS server is in fact the router itself. And then in the router itself, we create an entry called Unify, and that resolves to the public IP address of our Unify server. And so okay. when you plug any access point into a network that has been configured by us, by default, that access point is going to populate inside of our uh, server. And then you just click Adopt, and, and it's good to go. Now, that's a very simple, easy, straightforward cool. way to get that set up and running. Doesn't take a lot of time. Doesn't mm -hmm. cost. Uh, it doesn't cost a lot of money. You can rent a five dollar DigitalOcean droplet. You can run it on your server at home and just forward the ports. You could spin it up on an Amazon EC2 instance. Now, as far as how many access yeah. points to buy, how to pop, how how densely to populate that area, what you're looking for in access points yeah. is twenty decibels. That's twenty dB of separation between access points. And the reason for that is, is a lot of people have this misconception that the stronger the Wi-Fi signal is, the better. And that's not entirely true, because what you end up having is one Wi-Fi signal starts to interfere with the second Wi-Fi signal. And so sure. uh, so what you do is you log into the access point, and you'll be able to see neighbors. On, on, so you set up the first access point, you'll be able to see neighbors. You take the second access point, and you walk further and further away until you have about 20 dB of separations. And at that point, that's where you put that second access point. Now, I can give you a ballpark. In a concrete constructed hotel with access points in the hallways, which is not ideal. If you can, you always want to get them in the hotel room. But if you can't, the access right. points in the hallway, you are looking at one access point per 25 feet. Now, in a wide open coffee shop, you might okay. not need more than one access point. One might cover the whole place if it's all in one room and you're not penetrating concrete walls. And that's why I say the, the correct answer True. is... The correct answer is 20 dB of separation. The, the, the issue I had is okay. when I was first starting out and I would get that answer, 25 dB of separation, I would sit down at CDW to go order access points, and it's like, well, how many access points do I order? Should I order one? Should I order two? Should I order 10? Yeah. 20? I don't know. And I won't know what 20 dB of separation is yeah. until I have a couple of them here and I can, I can tweak them. So if you're looking for a rough starting area, mm -hmm. one every 25 feet, that's in the most densely anti-radio room thing we've ever done, and we seem to get good performance one every sure. 25 feet. Uh, now, now that's it, okay. with room distance is only uh, you know twelve feet each direction or whatever, so there is that. But um, but yeah. but that that should get you started. W w does that answer your question? Does that give you a pretty okay. good start? Pretty good start. Um, the other question, I mean, the the follow up is, um, I, I I assume these access points run over power over Ethernet, uh, and can. I have absolutely no idea. Okay. 
they can, but they can also be run just plugged into the wall. Is that? Well, the, the access, the, one of the things I like about Unify is for the, the $200 or whatever, when you buy the access point, it comes with a power over Ethernet injector. So there's a couple of different ways to do this. Oh. The first way, The first way is you can literally just right where you put the access point, especially it, what you'll find is if you're ever retrofitting a place, if they've tried to install Wi-Fi themselves, a lot of times they'll take consumer-grade routers and they'll just scatter them all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're replacing that sure. kind of scenario, you can just unplug the router from the wall the that's acting as an access point and plug the PoE injector right into the wall where it was and just have the power injector right next to the access point. Obviously, if you're going from scratch or if you're running the yeah. cable, if you have the ability, it's nice to get all those power injectors in a central location. Better yet... You can buy a switch from Ubiquity. I think they're about 400 bucks, and uh, it has PoE built into the switch. So that okay. way you don't even have to, because one of the things you'll find that's kind of a pain, if you get into any size, any scale to the thing, you start getting 200 access points. 200 Ethernet power injectors is a lot to put inside of a room and power. And you, yeah. and just to meet just right. to meet fire code regulations, electrical regulations, especially if you're in California, man, yeah, that could be tough. Yeah. So the, I, yeah. I just looked here. So well, it's four hundred thirty eight dollars for a twenty four port managed switch. That's the that is the two hundred fifty watt version. So I mean, you could run. Okay. I mean, you know, and and again, for a coffee shop, I'm probably just putting a single power injector. That comes yeah, with the access that, point. Yeah, that, right that would definitely be. Yeah, that would definitely be overkill. Um, I I don't know what kind of infrastructure they have in there. When I sit in there and I look around, they I don't see any access points. My assumption mm-hmm. is that they got business internet from AT&T and AT&T gave them a router and they set it up and that's the end of it because I I haven't seen any cables run and I haven't seen any access points anywhere. So okay. um that's you know the there's only room for improvement. So that's yeah. why I'm kind of hoping to, uh, this might be a sort of a soft target for <laughs> for starting the business. So uh yeah. so yeah, so that's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, and it's one of those things, Matthew, if you think about it, if you're a small business owner and you own a coffee shop, you undoubtedly have people that are sitting there and saying, I really want good Wi-Fi. I really want good Wi-Fi. I really want good Wi-Fi. And so when you have a guy that comes in and doesn't say, uh, that guy right there, uh, yeah, you, you still wanted to come? You don't have time? Uh, that's fine. If it works, it works. If not, that's fine. Uh, if you, if you ha- continually have Wi-Fi issues, and you have somebody that comes in, and they don't say, for $2,000, I'll solve this problem for you. Because, it, I mean, I'll be honest with you. At the, at the, at the level that Ultaspeed has grown to, if we go into a coffee shop, I'm not giving services away anymore. You know, like, we, we've, we did that to get our foot in the door. We did that to, to, to show that we are a competent player in the field and can do a really great job and provide really great service. But at these days, like, we have too much work. I'm trying to pare down work. So if, if we get a company that calls us and, you know, they, they, they're reaching out to us and they're asking us to do these kinds of things, but you have to t- look at it from the perspective of that coffee shop owner. If he walks in and says, hey, you know, I don't have Wi-Fi. I have people complaining about Wi-Fi. What can I do about this? And you're the guy that shows up and says, hey, I can provide this for you. I can, I can do this uh, Wi-Fi for you, and I'm not going to charge you anything. Just, you know, the thank you for me is if you could tell your friends when they need Wi-Fi, you know, send them my way. I would really appreciate that. That is going to go so far, and you will buy something far more valuable. Trust. And trust is something that can't really be purchased. You can't put a dollar amount on it. And the closest you're going to get is saying, I will give away my services, which I value at X, and I will give away this equipment, which I value at Y, and so the cost is Z. That's what you're paying for that trust, but you can't buy it any other way. You just kind of have to do it. 
Again, phones, phone, this, phone lines this hour are open, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Uh, Adam joins us from Vancouver. He's here with us at Linux Fest Northwest. Hey, Adam, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Thanks, Noah. Good so, to be here. Yeah, so uh, you, you, have, you, you and I have talked uh, over the past couple of years. We've had a, a pretty decent ongoing relationship, I'd like to think. And... Um, you came up and said, well, when you're starting the show, I'd really like to chat with you and ask some questions. I said, hey, man, sit down and ask him right live, you know, <laughs> while we're here. And, of course, you brought your Sony camera, which I envy. Uh, so, so tell me, how can we help? Uh, so we've been, uh, I've, I had my company for about two and a half years, totally based on uh, open source tech. I think every single developer that we have, uh, maybe with an exception of one, okay. uh, they all run on all various uh, flavors of Ubuntu. Sure. I'm uh, Katie Neon myself, um, even our... Uh, Chief Commercial uh, Officer, a C-level guy, is on uh, is on Linux, running okay. uh, uh, KDE Neon as well on an old uh, Lenovo. Okay. So uh, one of the things that we do is we put on a meetup uh, twice a week, uh, sorry, twice a month, but every two weeks, and uh, we are in the stage of getting all that stuff live. And so obviously we're interested in some of the uh, free and open source tooling to yes. to start streaming these things in a more professional way. So uh, we've tried Periscope before uh, and uh, Google Hangouts and other things to to live stream a presenter uh, that we have on our on our meetup that uh -huh. happens uh, shameless plug every Thursday. Uh, okay, every and where can Thursday, they where, yeah. and where can they go to see to to, to listen? Uh, you can just uh, take a look at uh, meetup.com and look at the uh, microservices uh, meetup in uh, in Vancouver okay. area. Um, a lot of those are streamed, and uh, so my question is exactly how to do this a lot more professionally because we want to a capture the video of the speaker presenting mm -hmm. uh, their presentation from their laptop. Sure. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we have one of those OWL Labs uh, 360 camera speaker microphone combos, yes. Yes. Which, uh, which pans around for Q&A, which works really well for, for meetings, for business meetings, but mm -hmm. also does a good job for meetups. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the question is, uh, how do we wire up, uh, you know, the source, uh, the three sources? Uh, you got the presentation going, you've got the, the speaker uh, waving their hands and uh, being funny, et cetera, and then you have the interaction with the with the audience so asking questions. Right. And so you have these three sources. Uh, one, obviously, just video or still pictures, the presentation, pro probably just video. Uh, then you have audio-video combination for the other two sources. And uh, I'm thinking OBS, but... What's a good way to do that? Is it, is it one of the person's uh, laptops in the audience? Is there a separate person with a laptop dedicated to that? Um, what's a good way of, uh, light way of doing that? Sure. Well, uh, as with any project, it depends on your budget. So that's the first, uh, that's the first disclaimer. So we'll start with the least expensive, and easy, uh, least expensive but not best way to do it, and we'll work our way up to the absolute best way to do it and the way we're actually doing it here. So the, the, the cheapest, easiest, quick and dirtiest way to do it is you can use something called X Compositor inside of OBS to capture the windows and the screens of the computer that you're actually streaming on. So you could run OBS, a streaming software, on your local machine, and you could open the windows and just capture those windows. Okay. Now, there is a Linux Fest that streams all of their talks, and that is what they're doing. They are capturing the window of the presenter's machine. OBS is running on that particular machine. Okay. Downsides to doing that. One... Uh, you have to reset up that capture every single time for whatever window you want to capture. You don't have as much control over sizing and spacing and stuff like that. So, for example, if you ever watch any of the Jupiter Broadcasting shows, when Chris is showing his screen, it's framed in the center of whatever the graphic arts that are around it. Yep. And you don't see 
anything except what he wants you to see. You don't see his address bar. You don't see the bar right. down below. You don't see any of his notifications. Mm -hmm. And that's because he set that shot up to only capture that particular part of the screen. Yes. And that's a little bit more difficult to do in software because it changes dynamically. The w size of the window changes. The um, the the application name changes. If you go from Google to Chrome, from uh, Google Chrome to Firefox, if you visit a different website, all of those things will change. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't need any extra hardware to do it. It can be done completely on free software. Okay, so that's, that's really good. That's way yeah. number one. Mm -hmm. Way number two, <clears throat> slightly better way is to use uh, these little USB HDMI capture devices. Actually, our technical director, uh, Chase Nunez, uh -huh. uh, who runs a broadcasting uh, uh, podcast production company uh, and, and actually does a lot of live broadcasting uh, and, and, um, and calling of pinball games and stuff at geekgamer.tv, he has these little $120 uh, devices made by a company called Camlink, and it's a USB HDMI capture device. Okay. So you can have one uh, computer that's the presenter screen, another machine that is running the OBS software, mm -hmm. And the OBS software is then capturing whatever comes in over that HDMI input. Now, that could be a laptop. Yep. That could be a DVD player. That could be a, uh, a whatever, a, a regular camera. Yep. And you can just pull that source in. And now you can tweak that shot, and it will appear the exact same way no matter what source is feeding that cam link. Okay. Problems with the cam link, you're going to run out of USB bandwidth, an issue that kind of hit us earlier on here today. Yep. You get two or three of those plugged into a system, and I'd say one or two tops in a laptop and you're going to see the next, as you plug the next one in, the first one falls off. Yes. Because you're running out of USB bandwidth. You're yes. physically exceeding the limitations of that system. Mm -hmm. So uh, the next step up is to go with PCI capture. And there's two ways to do PCI capture. And uh, maybe I'll get Chase's take on this, too, in a second. Uh, there are two ways to do PCI capture. The first is you can actually put a PCI HDMI capture card in the computer. The second way, and the way that Chase had recommended to me, and I tried it, and it, I've actually... Believe it or not, I've actually had less problems with that than doing it the traditional way of doing PCI captures. You put a USB, dedicated USB card in the computer that actually has four individual USB buses and then put each one of those cam links on one of those USB buses. And you've been playing with this back in your setup, and yeah. you've had it's been rock solid, right? Oh, yeah. No, uh, so uh, many different companies make this. Uh, the one that I'm uh, recommending is the Sonnet one. Right. Uh, they make two different versions. Uh, one is, uh, I think, 50 or $60. It gives you four USB 3.0 ports, but it's uh, all a shared, I think, 5 gigabit bus. However, they make a second card that gives you five gigabit bus on every individual port. So your only potential bottleneck is going to be your PCI Express slot, if anything. Right. If you have a computer made in the last, say, five years or so, you're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the kicker with the, even with the cam link is, especially with the cam link, you've got to give it specifically what it's looking for. So if it's looking right. for 1080p 60, that's what you got to give it. Sure. There's no uh, transcoding options with it, or you can't, uh, no scaling options, excuse yes. me. So you can't change it if you want to down res it. That's where a benefit like a Magewell uh, USB uh, right. stick will give you more options. But for cost effectiveness, the cam links, by, and it's by Elgato, by the way, Yes. Uh, can't be beat. They cannot okay. be beat. So we'll have a link to both the Elgato. Um, Camlink and the Sonnet Allegro Pro USB 3.0 PCI Express card. We'll have links to both of those in the show notes. So if you head over to podcast.asknowashow.com slash 62, we'll have those there for you if you're interested in doing the same. But does that does that answer your question? Yeah, I think uh, the biggest uh, issue for us is the logistics of our operation and that we have uh, not a standard uh, regular studio where we have the meetups or, right. or a company. So we go from uh, usually between two different companies that host our meetup 
mm-hmm. to perhaps a third uh, option if, if none of those ones are available. Um, we count them as sponsors and they're really excellent members of the community, so they always help us out, but sometimes they have bookings that they just can't move. So we have to have this a little bit more mobile, mm-hmm. and so me dragging uh, a large uh, computer with uh, a, a lot of stuff in there would be prohibitive. So I'm thinking, you know, we have to really, A, also make sure that the speaker has something that can capture some video on right. their, on their um, uh, laptop, which right. which may be prohibitive uh, to some of these people that just bring in, God knows what, some old Windows machine or a MacBook or something, then we really don't have much control, nor do we really want to be po- poking around with those proprietary systems for them. We kind of want to have something from their HDMI, so one of these little $120 cards, um, in between their display and, um, and and their computer to capture everything that they're showing would probably be best. Uh, and then uh, obviously uh, capture the other the other cameras on a, on a separate machine, right? So right. The, the OWL Labs thing would be one and uh, one video source that we just continually to cap uh, continue to capture um, and and uh, and record for post production. It's fine because then we can take all those three sources and combine them and mix them depending exactly. on, on which is great. But the key is is that a lot of people are interested in joining live because they can a- ask questions. Yes, you know the community is, uh, is is small in Vancouver, but it's fairly large globally. So we have to, right. we have to do this uh, on a global scale. Uh, not that it's super popular or anything, but it's just yeah. just to gather enough people with the same interest. You have to go global, so we need to have that influx of people all over the world uh, to be able to you know make it worthwhile. So I'm, I'm guessing that combined with OBS to be able to switch for the live feed what the presentation is, and then to the owl would kind of be the minimum uh, ability. So I'm thinking the first option that you gave, and. Uh, and then, uh, and then, of course, my second part to this question is also uh, we do a podcast as well, which is a, a, a little bit more focused on tech and uh, runs less often than every week uh, from uh, Advanced Media. Uh, and uh, we had another question about producing, uh, translating some of the stuff with, with some video overlays and publishing sure. on, on YouTube. Um, there's been some issues with uh, getting the exact... Uh, uh, getting the exact resolutions onto something that's high quality on YouTube versus okay. you know what encoders do you guys use, etc. To get to get the level of output. I mean, I can do some basic things in Blender and maybe have uh, pay someone to do, to polish them up a little bit. Right. Um, but then I want to be able to use them and mix them and uh, publish them to YouTube to be at the highest resolutions for those that have the bandwidth and want to have a nice picture to look at. So, what's your recommendation for for all those encoders for being able to publish on YouTube? Because it seems to be quite a common source for people to go to for content and we want to be able to splice up our episodes and give 17 12 minute you know sound bites of a particular topic for people that don't want to listen to an entire hour and a half interview with someone on a very technical topic right no that makes perfect sense uh so first of all i want you to take a look this is the cam link uh, from elgato so you can take yeah, a look at it here. Uh, those of you that are listening, you'll have yeah. to use your imagination. But it is a really cool device. No bigger than a little Wi-Fi uh, USB dongle. Yeah. Uh, so I'll start by answering your question by saying this. In the production world, we have a we have a we have a, a saying, and it's called "garbage in, garbage out." And basically, the idea is that you can never end up with a finalized product better than what you started with. Yeah. And so what you need to understand is when you're going into it, you always 
so, so we separate it into two different things. We have the published format, which is what everyone sees. We have another format that we call the acquisition format. And the acquisition format is absolutely as high quality as possible. Yep. We start with the absolute highest quality source material that we can, and then we condense it down for consumption. I'll give you an example. When we do commercials at AltaSpeed, if we do a, if we do a, we produce a commercial for a company, or we produce a, uh, a, a you know, a promo video or something like that, the acquisition format is uncompressed video essentially. There's no, there's actually no really true such thing. Everything has its own little encoding yep. mechanism, right? But, but it's as close to uncompressed as you can get. But that means that the source files are can be terabytes yes, of, of footage, mm -hmm. uh, even for a 15 or 20 minute uh, thing. And, uh, and then we take that acquisition material, we bring it into our editor, we edit it up however we're going to do it, and there's a really great editor called Lightworks. It's made by a company called EditShare, and the thing that Lightworks does that I think is really neat that a lot of the other open source editors don't do is multi-camera editing. So you can have four cameras and record four different sources, or you can record on OBS and have the, you know, the start of the switch, whatever, and bring that into the editor and in post play director and say, okay, I want this camera, that camera, this camera. We yep. really should have had the shot on that guy. You can do all of that in post inside of Lightworks. Mm -hmm. Then when you're done, you actually render it out. Now, there's a, there, I'm going to get hate mail for saying this on, on the air, and it's, you know, it's uh, just speaking the truth. The reality is, like, we would like to say as open source advocates that you should use AUG and, uh, and publish to MKV and all that stuff. The, the, the truth of the matter is you're going to get the best results by publishing to MP4 because that's what everybody's device wants to wants that's to right. play and and mm -hmm. encoding that MPEG video um, and uh, and containing it in MP4 and uh, you know use uh, you know MP3 or uh, AAC for the audio something like that mm -hmm. and you're that that's what that's what's going to play best on on a bunch of people's okay. uh, devices now there's a number of different ways to take that acquisition terabytes of footage and condense it down into a couple hundred megs or whatever mm -hmm. gigabyte or whatever it is um, the, what I use for the Ask Noah show is a custom FFmpeg command, and I'll give that to you. I'll have that command linked in the show notes as well. Great. Um, so that, that's one thing you can do. The other thing you can do is you can use a piece of software like a GUI tool like Handbrake, mm -hmm. and you can use that to, uh, to, uh, to encode the video. And the Handbrake standard profile is yeah. actually pretty decent. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first time I saw this problem was when I was trying to just simply put up a, maybe a 15, uh, not even a 15-minute, maybe a 5-minute, uh, screencast of uh, of uh, using fish shell or something on my uh, on my computer uh, to show some scripting things and some concepts. Uh, going through to some uh, other screencasts of people, it was as if I was watching their native uh, resolution on my screen when I full screened that yes. uh, YouTube, right? Right. And, then and then once I looked at my uploaded stuff, I'm like, I'm not getting the right encoding because I am not seeing that pixel perfect yes. kind of rendition. Um, and of course, then they have to go back to the editor, zoom in on areas of the screen, etc. Yeah. And I'd rather not. This is probably someone, wh whoever's watching is probably looking at this at work because it's related right. and they probably have it on the monitor and they actually do want to see the nice crispness and, and all that and look at my environment. So kind of wanted to uh, to get those points uh, behind behind uh, your answers here and uh, thank you. That's Excellent, yeah. yeah. Thanks for joining us. Again, phone lines are open, one 855 That's 855-450-6624. The email live at com. Simon Quigley, producer, uh, Director of Operations at Speed, you got a promotion, I guess. Somebody did that, and they didn't, nobody ran it by me, so I, <laughs> I would have put the kibosh on that. Uh, no, but uh, so you guys are doing some cool things at the Lubuntu Project. You are now the uh, release manager for, yep. for the Lubuntu team. Mm -hmm. And uh, so talk to me about that. What kind of cool things are you guys doing at Lubuntu? 
so or we, Kubuntu. You also you're also on Kubuntu team, right? Yeah, you um, basically do all the Linuxes. <laughs> well, I'm I'm just generally an Ubuntu person, but um, in Kubuntu that we just had, well, in Kubuntu and Lubuntu, we just had our 18.04 release that was Thursday. So um, for both Kubuntu and Lubuntu, that's supported for the next three years until 2021, if I'm doing my math right in my head. Um, so with Kubuntu, we're shipping the latest LTS Plasma release. So that's Plasma 5.12.4, I think we're shipping stock. And then we're going to continue shipping bug fix releases as it goes on. And then the underlying Q stack and whatever else, that's that's going to be just, it's all in the Trino LTS, and we're following that through. Um, so that's going to continue to get updates throughout the LTS cycle. Um, it really is a nice release because you have the latest LTS Plasma on top of the latest LTS Qt on top of a, on an LTS Ubuntu, and it's, it really is a nice combination of software. Um, lots of different customizations you can do, lots of different new things in Plasma. Um, I'm really excited for the Kubuntu release. I'm also excited for the Lubuntu release because, um, well, it's, it's, it's a little bit like just previous releases. So we have the LXDE desktop, um, latest bug fix releases with those. Um, then with that, in both of the installer for Lubuntu and Kubuntu, we have the minimal install option. So you can click a little checkbox in the installer and it will, you know, it will lessen the applications that are installed by default. So you can just, if you don't want some of the applications that are installed, um, I know with, with Kubuntu it doesn't ship some of the um, like the personal like identity management or, or like the contacts and whatever else it doesn't ship all of that by default. And then there's um, and then in Lubuntu it doesn't ship like I know a lot of people replace things with Abby. Well, well they replace like Abby Word with LibreOffice that sort of thing. So um, that's really a nice a nice option that's available now in the installer. Um, other than that, it's it's a it's a nice LTS release. Um, the first one, well, the first LTS release in two years, so it's really a nice, nice thing. Um, and then, so if you're running 17.10 for either Kubuntu or Lubuntu, um, you will get the upgrade notice. Well, you should have already. 17.10 um, will be supported for another three months, and then if you're on 16.04, um, once we hit 18.04.1 July, you will get the upgrade notice for that. So, so. You know, it's it's funny that you mentioned the stack of LTS. Yeah. Okay. You, it, it, uh, the thing that is great about that. So this machine right here, the broadcast machine that Chase was given praise to earlier. Mm. The reason that we went to it, and I'll be honest with you, Chris was the one that was pushing me towards it, and I had a little bit of a pushback because I was like, man, eighteen oh four just came out. I think maybe we should look back at sixteen oh four. And he says, no, man, all those all that LTS stacking on top of one each other, one another, means that this is the most the, the way to get the most reliable system. Right. And so this is an 1804 LTS machine, okay. Kubuntu LTS machine. We tried Zubuntu. We've tried Ubuntu Mate. We tried Ubuntu proper 1604 with Unity. Mm. We've tried uh, Gnome. None of them just work as well as Kubuntu. I mean, Kubuntu is just the most stable desktop operating system if you want to get day-to-day -day work done. It also offers a tremendous amount of flexibility, and so that's why I'm running it here on my laptop. I've got it on this uh, spare laptop that we have over here. Mm -hmm. Chris has it on his XPS. You don't know it, but I took your laptop while you were sleeping last night and installed Kubuntu. <laughs> I mean, it's on everything, you know? And, and so I, I really appreciate all the work that you 
and the, the Kubuntu team isn't actually that large. It's uh, just a couple of people, right? Yeah, um, it's it's me and then there's Rick Mills. Other, otherwise, it's not that many people. Um, well, of course, we have the whole Kubuntu team. Like, the release manager, Valerie Zimmerman, is here. Otherwise, right. the Kubuntu team is pretty small. But as far as development, yeah. making changes, fixing right. bugs and stuff, that's you and one other guy. Right. That's awesome. So talk to me about the automation that you must have had to put into place to make that happen. Right. So we have a bunch of, of different scripts that I think, well, we've we've changed them over time and we fix bugs over time, but they're a, a little bit old. But um, we have automation that we can run a, a one script and it will do a new Plasma release or a new release of, of a KDE stack. We can upload that to like a PPA or something, get some testing on it, and then if it looks good and if the packaging looks same, we just release it. So that's... It, we have a lot of that automated at this point. Um, that's with like the KDE stack, and then with the Qt stack, it's a little bit more involved. But of course, because it's the Qt stack, it's a little bit complex. Um, otherwise, there's a lot of automation that goes around that. A lot of just automated scripting. Um, it's, it's nothing special, really. And, and then on top of that, staying on top of uh, staying on top of tickets, staying on top of of, of, of bug reports as right. they come in, making sure that those are addressed. Uh, you know, lickety split. Right. And the, like, uh, the thing um, with the LTS stacks is that, you know, a month from now, a year from now, you'll still get bug fix updates because upstream it still has support. So upstream they're still putting updates in there. Sure. So. That's awesome. I think that's terrific. So now I want to switch topics. I want to shift a little bit and I want to talk about, uh, you know, Lubuntu, which I know is is uh, a lot of people have this idea that Lubuntu is just for low level machines, low low power machines, stuff like that. But the truth of the matter is, you guys have given a facelift to Lubuntu, and it looks better than ever this year. Yeah. So um, with regular Lubuntu, with regular LXD Ubuntu, um, the the major thing. Artwork wise, that's changes. We have like a new uh, a new background that I think looks wonderful. It's not the usual like geometric geometric patterns we've had the last couple of years. Um, it is a nice like space background. But with Lubuntu Next, it, Lubuntu Next is really where a lot of development work goes these days. So it's Lubuntu with LXQT. Our plan is to transition to, onto that sometime soon. Okay. Um, so that that ships with the um, with the Arc theme by default. It ships with Papyrus icons. It, um, and that space background. So the, the blend of all of that, it looks pretty well, or looks pretty good. But, sure. Um, we ship uh, in Lubuntu Next, which, like I said, a lot of the development work is going into. We need to actually release it this time for the um, for the LTS. We need to actually um, release it. But it, it ships with LibreOffice. It ships with the new KDE Falcon browser, um, which I, it used to be Coopzilla, but now it's, well, KDE Falcon, and they have a new logo, and it's, it's it's a really nice browser and just a, a set of applications that we really think people will use. Um, so I know in in regular Lubuntu, not to say that the applications don't work as well, but you don't find people using nowadays. You don't find people using Abby Word or Numeric sure. as often as Lib like LibreOffice, yeah, for example. Right. So, yeah. So that so it's it's the distro that caters to the things that the other distros don't cater to. Right. And another thing with Lubuntu Next is. Um, we are no longer going to use Ubiquity, so we are going to use the Calamari's installer, which is um, a distro-independent like installer framework. So, gotcha. Um, it's a very modular installer, um, the way it's put together, and it's it will allow a lot of flexibility going forward. So, now would you recommend Ubuntu, uh, Lubuntu, to a person who um, they need a solid workstation, they need a solid uh, computer for work or for home business or something like that, mm. not just something they're playing around with, not something for development, It's this is just a day-to-day -day operating system. Is it something you put grandma on? Lubuntu, yes. I would put um, grandma on Lubuntu. Okay. Um, Lubuntu Next, though, Lubuntu Next just needs a little bit of tweaks here and there, and it is otherwise pretty rock solid. Okay. Um, so...
Yeah. Awesome. I want to uh, I want to pivot and and, uh, and and this is a little self-serving uh, for a little bit, but one of the things that uh, that I was thinking about, um, and you and I had a conversation last night. We were talking about a couple different things, um, but one of the things I'm just proud of, and it's and it's interesting now to to be able to talk to you both as a as the community manager for for uh, or the release manager for Lubuntu, and then tell you, okay, now I want you to put your AltaSpeed hat on for a second, and you deal with a lot of our internal operations at AltaSpeed, mm -hmm. coordinating technicians, coordinating remote support, and the thing is, we are a group of people that make a lot of money off of open source, right? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, as I was driving home last night after I, after I dropped you off, I started to think, you know, is that something I should scale back? Is that something I should feel guilty about, about making, you know, money, making a living off of, off of these people? Because I, I come to these conferences to give back, not to take from people. Mm. Right, and, and, I, and I guess what I came to, and I'd be interested to get your take on this, is I feel like in a lot of ways we do things, uh, you know, I feel like we we care more about actual Linux than a lot of people do. Is that fair? Um, well, I mean, there's different degrees to that. Some people who care about it, you know, just for development, some people who care about it for different things. I mean, it really depends. Um, but we do care a lot about Linux. Well, that's that's awesome, and that's a pleasure to work with you. Hey, guys, did you know the show is available as a downloadable podcast? To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find the latest episode. Of course, follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telsis for providing our phone system, better producer, and Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty more content for you 24-7 at asknoahshow.com. <laughs>